Good morning, church. It is so very good to see you. Isn't it so good to not only have Jesus as our friend, but to have one another? As we were singing, singing those songs together this morning, I was just thinking about what a beautiful metaphor and picture singing is. Not only for what we do on a Sunday morning, but what we should be doing all week long, all month long, all year long, every day of our life, and that is being together, joining our hearts and our minds and our spirits and our songs, our praise together. Isn't it so wonderful to know that no matter what it is that you're going through, no matter your struggles, no matter your heartaches, no matter your ups and downs, that we have each other to lean on and to encourage. I love and appreciate you all so very, very much. You've probably heard this story before. I think it's funny, but I, I think it also illustrates a, a, an important point that we're talking about this month in our series. But there's this story about this older gentleman who was walking along a country road with his mule and his dog when all of a sudden this pickup truck came barreling around the corner and it sort of slid on the dirt road and it collided with the man and his animals and sent them into the ditch. And a while later, the, the older gentleman decided he was going to sue the driver of the pickup for damages. And so during the trial, the defense attorney came up and was cross-examining the older gentleman who had been struck by the pickup. And he said, sir, now I just need a yes or a no answer. That's it, just a yes or a no answer. But didn't you say on the day of the accident that you were perfectly Fine. And I quote, perfectly fine. Didn't you say you were perfectly fine? And the older gentleman said, well, I was walking along the road with my mule and my dog. And the attorney said, no, 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 stop, sir, sir. I, we don't need to hear your story. We just need a yes or a no answer. Just a yes or a no answer, please. Didn't you say that you were perfectly fine? And the old man said, well, I was walking along the road with my mule and my dog. And he says, no, 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 stop. No, we, we don't need the story. We just need a yes or no. And he turned to the judge and he said, Your Honor, would you instruct the witness to, to just give us a yes or no answer? And the judge said, No, no, no. I, I think we need to hear his story. And so the old man said, Okay, well, I was walking along the road with my mule and my dog. And this pickup truck came barreling, barreling around the corner and struck us and sent us in the ditch. And, and the man got out of the pickup and he saw that my dog was very wounded. And so he got his gun and he shot my dog. And then he came along to the mule, and he saw that my mule had broken its leg, and so he got his gun, and he shot my mule. And then he came to me, and I said, I'm perfectly fine. Right? <laughs> and I think that illustrates something, doesn't it? That context matters. Context matters. Sometimes we don't want the story, though. Sometimes we read the Bible a lot like that attorney was asking those questions. Just give me a yes or a no answer. I don't want the story. I don't want a long, drawn-out thing. I just want a yes or no answer. Just give me a simple yes or no. But that doesn't really answer the question that we're looking for. A statement only has meaning within its context. You can't give a simple sentence and really have that sentence take on meaning unless you take it within the context of the story. And, and this is the way we often treat scripture, isn't it? God is inviting us into a story. 
He's saying, let me share this story with you, not just to tell you this story, but to invite you into this story so that you become a part of this story. But so often we say, we don't want the story. We don't want the story. Just give me a yes or a no answer. And so we take this sentence out of the scripture or this sentence out of scripture and we try to understand its meaning without the story, without the context, and we get it so very wrong so many times. So we're going to look at a verse today and look at what it, it seems to mean on the surface when you just look at it without any context, and then look at what it, it very well might mean. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Again, this is, might be a passage that you're familiar with, that you've heard, maybe even one that you've quoted. I know that with every passage we're talking about in this series, chances are I've quoted it in a way that wasn't in keeping with the meaning. Philippians 2 and verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Again, we have this tendency, you'll notice that I point this out a lot, we have this tendency to read the Bible as if the author was speaking directly to an individual person, and most of the time we we take it as if he's talking directly to us as an individual person, right? And so sometimes we read this passage and we take it to mean that every individual person is responsible for knowing all of the right things and doing all of the right things so that they make sure that they themselves are saved. And in fact, sometimes the way we use this passage is we say, well, you have to work out your salvation and I have to work out my salvation and you are responsible for what you do and say and think and I'm responsible for what I do and say and think and you're on your own and I'm on my own. In fact, that's how we tend to apply this passage, is that we're all sort of on our own, and we all have to do our own thing and believe our own thing. Now, the Bible has a lot to say, don't get me wrong, about personal responsibility. The Bible has a lot to say about personal responsibility, but in this text, that's not exactly what Paul has in mind. So how do we figure out what Paul has in mind? We look at the context, right? We look at the context and we say, what is this? What is he saying by work out your own salvation? So let's go back just a little bit. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. I'd like to start at the beginning of the chapter, but we have to go back a little further than that to really get the big picture of what is Paul saying and what does that mean for us to work out our own salvation? Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, he says, only let your manner of life Be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In fact, it would be good, I think, to cross-reference this verse right here with Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. So if you write in your margin, you might write in your margin a little note that this verse helps to explain the verse that we're talking about. Because he says, he says, walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what does it look like? What does it look like to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel 
of Christ? What does it look like to walk in a manner that is worthy to say those are gospel people? Those are people who believe the good news about Jesus. Those are people that Jesus has transformed. Those are Jesus kind of people. What does he say? What does that look like to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? He says that we should have one spirit and one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is what it it looks like, or the first thing that it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Unity, togetherness, one mind, one spirit, side by side for the faith of the gospel. Which means, on the other hand, contrary to that, that if you're not walking in unity, if you're not unified with your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you don't have one mind and one spirit and you're not standing side by side for the truth and the faith of the gospel, then you are not walking in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Do we already begin to see the problem with the way that we interpret Philippians 2 and verse 12? This idea that you're on your own and I'm on my own way. Paul is saying, wait, in the very beginning, walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Here's what it looks like. Have one mind, have one spirit, stand side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is the first sign that we're living a life that is in keeping with the good news of Jesus. Unity. And then he goes on to say, verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now, Paul, when he was in Philippi, do you remember? He was imprisoned and beaten in Philippi. They saw it, and Paul was still enduring that sort of persecution. And don't you know, the church in Philippi was still enduring persecution. They, were, they still had people who were their opponents. And Paul says two things, two things in this context, that it looks like to live a life that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus. How do people know? Those are Jesus people. Those are Jesus people. How do people know that you're Christians? How do people know that you are living a life that's been changed and transformed by the good news of Jesus? That you, with your brothers and sisters in Christ, have one mind and one spirit. And you stand side by side for the faith of the gospel. And and you're not afraid of your opponents. And you're willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus. That's what it looks like. It looks like not being afraid of religious persecution, not being afraid of your opponents, and standing side by side with your brothers and sisters in Christ with one mind and one spirit. This is what Paul is describing as a life that is in keeping with the good news. But the opposite of that would be true as well, wouldn't it? That if we're fighting with each other and we're we're terrified of our opponents, what might happen, what might happen, what might happen, then we're not living a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. He keeps going with this same thought in chapter 2 and verse 1. So, 
if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, being of the same mind, having the same love in full accord and of one mind. He says, if you've gained anything from Jesus, if Jesus has done anything for you, if you've been transformed by him, if you have any encouragement in Christ, if you have any comfort in his love, if you have any participation in the Spirit, if you have any affection and sympathy, if you really are gospel people, if you really are good news people, if you really are Jesus' people, then, then make my joy complete. Finish my joy. Don't, don't let me be disappointed, Paul's saying. I can't, I can't be there with you. And I wish I could, but I can't be there with you. But if you've gained anything from Jesus, if you've gained anything from the Spirit, if he's comforted you, if he's changed you, if he's transformed you, then what? What, Paul? What does it look like? What does it look like to be changed by Jesus? What does it look like to be transformed by his love, to participate in the spirit, to be encouraged in Christ? He says, then have the same mind and the same love in full accord and of one mind. You see where he's going with all of this? It's unity. It's unity. This is, this is what it looks like. This is what he's begging for. This is what he's pleading with the church in Philippi. I can't be with you, but even though I'm not there with you, I know what's going on there, and nothing would make me more joyful than if you would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And what does that look like? Same mind, same spirit, full accord, one mind. Be unified. Stand side by side for the faith of the gospel. Don't fight argue and divide and bite and devour one another. This is what it looks like to live a life that is changed and transformed by the good news of Jesus. So he says in verse 3, do nothing, nothing, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He hasn't changed themes. This is what it looks like to live a life, to walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what it looks like. In very practical terms, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Nothing out of selfish ambition. Nothing out of conceit. Your selfish ambition, it has to go. Your conceit and your pride and your ego, they have to go. This is not in keeping with the good news of Jesus Christ. If you're going to walk in a manner worthy of the good news of Jesus, then consider others to be of equal value with yourself. Is that what he said? Nope. That'd be hard enough, wouldn't it? That'd be hard enough to consider everyone to be equal with you. It's not what he says. He says, consider others to be what? More significant than yourselves. That's radical, isn't it? This is what it looks like to live a life that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You treat others as if they are more significant than you. 
And yes, of course, look out for your own interests. Of course, you have to take care of your own interests, but not just your own interests. No more selfish ambition, no more conceit, no more ego, no more pride, no more hubris. Humility. And, and take care of one another's interests and not just your own interests. So this idea that everybody just take care of themselves, you worry about you, I'll worry about me, you do what you do, you think what you think, I'll think what I think, I'll do what I do. No, this isn't what he's calling the church at Philippi to do, but rather to consider each other more significant than themselves and look out for each other's interests, not just their own. This is what it looks like to be Jesus people. This is what it looks like to be gospel people. This is what it looks like to be saved people. Not to say everybody's on their own, you, you work out your things, I'll work out my things, but to say we're all in this together. And I'm going to consider, and you're going to consider, and we're all going to consider each other more significant than ourselves and look out for each other's interests and not just our own. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now these verses, verses 5 through 11, they're written as if they're a hymn. They're written as if they're a hymn, maybe something that Paul is giving to the church at Philippi for the first time, or maybe a hymn with which they're already familiar. But I want you to contrast what he's saying here about our king and every other king you've ever heard of, including Caesar, who was venerated in cities like Philippi, who was revered in cities like Philippi. Consider the difference between our king Jesus and every other king. He says, if you're, if you're Jesus people, if you're gospel people, if you're saved people, then have the mind of Christ. What does that mean, Paul? What does it mean to have Christ's mind? Well, he says, Christ was in the form of God, but he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to or seized for his own advantage. That's what people naturally do, isn't it? People take every advantage they can get I can get this advantage, I can get that advantage, this is my right, this belongs to me, and then we leverage whatever we have for our own sake, for our own ambition. And Paul says, that's not the mind of Jesus. See, Jesus had everything. Jesus had equality with God, but Jesus didn't hold onto or seize a hold of or leverage his equality with God for his own good or his own advantage, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Now, Paul isn't just telling them this is what Jesus did. In context, he's calling them to imitate Jesus, to have this mindset, to have this way of thinking. He's calling them to empty themselves. Empty themselves and take on the form of a servant. All the pride, all the ego, all the ambition, all the conceit, all of the saying, this is mine, and I'm going to use it to my advantage. This belongs to me. I'm going to take this. I'm going to grab hold of this. I'm going to seize this. I'm going to grasp this. Paul says, not if you want to be like Jesus. 
Jesus' mindset, Jesus' way of thinking, the way of thinking that we're all supposed to share. Because hasn't he been calling them to have how many minds? Have countless minds among yourselves. Is that what he said? Have one mind, one mind, one spirit, one way of thinking, Jesus' way of thinking, so that you all consider each other to be more significant than yourselves. So that you all look out for each other's interests and not just your own. So that you all empty yourself of self. You empty yourself of conceit. You empty yourself of selfish ambition. And you look out for each other and you take care of each other. This is what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. This is what it looks like to be Jesus people. Not just saved individuals who happen to worship in the same building or in the same town or in the same locale but saved people who consider each other more significant than themselves, who say, your burdens are my burdens. And I'm not going to hold on to whatever it is that I have or whatever it is that I've been given or whatever is naturally mine. I'm going to empty myself. I'm going to take on the form of a servant. I'm going to serve you as if you were my superior. I'm going to serve you as if you were more significant than me. Paul says, this is what it looks like to have the mind of Jesus. This is the mind that you're all supposed to share amongst yourselves. Verse 8, and Jesus, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what salvation looks like. Not just in what salvation results in, Salvation will result in you being glorified with Jesus, right? Salvation will look like you being raised from the dead and you sharing in the glory of Jesus. But what does it look like before that? Before that, before that day on which we're raised, before that day on which we're glorified, it looks like us suffering with Jesus. It looks like us humbling ourselves. It looks like us taking on the form of a servant. The gospel says over and over again that when we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. That's what he's done for Jesus. That's what he'll do for you. But we want the results without the lifestyle, right? We want the results of salvation without the lifestyle of salvation. Jesus isn't just forgiving our sins. Salvation is so much more than just our sins being forgiven. It's rescuing us from the lifestyle that we had before. A lifestyle of selfish ambition. A lifestyle of conceit. A lifestyle of me first. A lifestyle of I have to look out for myself. Jesus is rescuing us from that. Jesus is saving us from that because that sort of lifestyle is not only self-absorbed, it's self-destructive. That sort of lifestyle is a path to death, but the path to life is the life of having the mind of Christ, considering others more significant than yourselves, 
looking out for their interests and not just your own. Having the same mind and the same spirit standing side by side in the faith of the gospel. It's unity. It's selflessness. It's service. It's love. This is what it looks like to be Jesus' people. So then he says, of course, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, based on all of this, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do we see the context? Do we see that when, when Paul uses these pronouns, you, that it's not singular, it's plural? I know y'all all laugh when I say all y'all, but, but I say all y'all all the time to remind us that it's not you, it's y'all. It's always been y'all. It's always been all y'all. Not just one individual person. Paul isn't just writing to a single individual. He's writing to this church family to tell them together, together, work out your salvation. What does that mean? It means bring your salvation to its visible nature. Make your salvation manifest. Bring it to its completion. Finish it. Because it's one thing to have a salvation that's merely theoretical. It's another thing to have a salvation that is visible. And what does visible salvation look like? Unity? Love? Isn't that what Jesus said? They'll know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. This is what it looks like for us to be collectively together working out our own salvation. If I'm a saved person and you're a saved person, then what does it look like for us together to be working out our own salvation? It looks like us being unified, considering one another to be more significant than ourselves, being of the same mind, sharing the mind of Jesus, where we empty ourselves of ego and we empty ourselves of ambition, and we empty ourselves of conceit, and we stop saying it's all about me, and we say it's all about him, and if it's all about him, then it's all about us. And then so often we miss verse 13, what Paul says in verse 13. He says that it's God who's working in y'all, God is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's not, it's not your strength. It's not your power. It's not your wisdom. It's not your insight. It's God. And God is working in y'all. God is working in the church in Philippi. And God is working in the church in Plano. And God is working in all of his people, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Both the will and the work come from God. It's his work that's happening within us to change us, transform us, and give us the will to have the same mind and the same spirit, to stand side by side in the faith of the gospel, to consider each other more significant than ourselves, to empty ourselves of vanity and conceit and selfish ambition, to love each other in unity. This is what working out our own salvation looks like. 
working out our salvation looks like selfless unity. Isn't that what he's saying in the context? This is what working out your salvation looks like. This is what it looks like to be saved people, to be saved people, to be gospel people, people who have received encouragement in Christ, people who have participated in the Spirit, people who have the same love and the same mind, working together to share the mind of Christ. This is what it looks like to work out our own salvation. So again, when we, we take this passage to mean you're on your own and I'm on my own, oh, nothing could be further from the truth. Oh, don't get me wrong. You, you will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and I will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but we're doing this salvation work together. We're doing this salvation work together. It's impossible to work out your own salvation by yourself. It's only possible to work out your salvation within the context of the people of God. Because this is what it looks like to be saved people. This is what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the encouragement is to know that God is working in you. God is working in us. God is working in all of us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So now, now we must be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We must be eager to work out our salvation, to bring it to manifestation, to bring it to visibility, to, to bring it to completion, to show ourselves to be people who are walking in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe there's somebody here this morning and you haven't yet received that salvation, that forgiveness, that rescuing from the old way of life, and you're ready, not only for a change in destiny, but a change in pathway, how you're living, how you're walking, and you're ready to be buried with Jesus in baptism. And for those of us who have received that salvation, let's bring it to completion. Let's work out our own salvation by loving one another and serving one another and considering one another to be more significant than ourselves. This is what it looks like to work out our salvation. It looks like unity. And if we can help you in any way this morning, you can come forward as we stand and sing this song.